morning, everyone. I hope that you have all had a great week. I know that we, the Turner family and the Waters family, have celebrated McKenna's second birthday this past week, so we're still savoring the moment. This place looked a lot different yesterday as we came in here. Coming off the holidays, I feel like I've eaten so many sweets. Anybody else feel that way, like cakes and all those good things? And uh, today, uh, as a church, we're celebrating our 23rd anniversary. So happy anniversary, Christ Church. Yay. Uh, the, the cake is going to be ready on the way out because along with McKenna's birthday party, of course, you know, you got to clean stuff up. And so at the end of the party, you know, we're cleaning up. And I had even told Christy, I said, I got to go back over to pick up the cake at six. And I totally blanked out. I just went right home. I was so tired. And then this morning I got here and I'm thinking, I didn't get the cake. <laughs> and they open at 10, so I knew I couldn't be over there. So I called my one dependable guy, Lance Pippen. Lance is doing me a solid. He went over and got the cake. So he and Aaron, I think, are out there cutting that cake right now. So when we finish today, on the way out, have a little piece of uh, anniversary cake from Christ Church. Get all sugared up before you go to lunch. How about that? You know, commercials tell us that you are what you eat. And I guess a nutritionist will tell you the same thing. That, that must mean that I'm a very sweet person. I'm a very sweet person. Why are you laughing like that? that that's not that. But the idea is that if you eat healthy foods, you're going to be healthy. If you don't eat healthy foods, well, there's the other option. And I guess there's a lot of truth in that statement. But it, it's not a new concept. You know, this has been around a long time. It traces way back to the 1800s. In fact, 1826... There was a French lawyer. I don't know why it was a lawyer that came up with this, but Anthem Brillat Savarin, and his words translated into English say, tell me what you eat, and I will tell you what you are. And he's the first recorded to say that. Later in 1853, Ludwig Andreas Feuerbach wrote, I hope I don't have to say his name again. Man is what he eats. And both of these gentlemen were teaching that idea that what we put into our bellies will have a direct impact upon our physical and possibly mental health. It wouldn't be until the early 1900s, 1923, the concept was presented in an advertisement for beef, of all things, in an ad in the Bridgeport Telegraph, which read, 90% of the diseases known to man are caused by cheap foodstuffs. You are what you eat. I know that it is cruel to bring this up right after the holiday season. I know that it is painful. But some of you have already, how many of you already started your diets? For, well, I don't want to ask you that question. That's not a fair question. But a lot of people have already started their new workout regimens and, and their diets for 2023. And they'll last at least a week or two. Uh, so maybe this will be some more added incentive. And I'm not here to talk to you about dieting habits. However, I am here to talk to us about 
our spiritual habits. In fact, one spiritual habit in particular. Now let's look at our spiritual life and the way that we look at uh, these dietitians were telling us about how to look at our physical life. I believe that it is a true statement, you are what you worship. Worship is another word describing what our heart is yearning for. Worship is our response to what we value most. And the truth is we all worship something whether we realize it or not. I mean, even people that don't believe in God are still worshiping something. Y'all get what I'm saying? The problem is that many of the things we worship will lead us to destruction. God created us as worshipers. And it is our natural response, our nature to worship. But often we are worshiping the created things rather than the creator. And this is where we have some serious problems in life. We become addicted to the harmful things. And I'm not just talking about drugs or alcohol. I'm talking about the things that fill our minds, the things that we're thinking about all the time, the things that we're yearning for. Each of those things can become an addiction for us. And we fail to recognize the one whom we should be worshiping. So it matters who we worship. It matters that we make the right choice. Because that choice will either make us or break us. Now Daniel and his friends understood that truth. And so in this series we began last week entitled The Daniel Dilemma. And the title of this is based on a book by that name. The Daniel Dilemma. You can find that uh, on Amazon or any bookstore. We've been reminded that Daniel and his friends were put in a very difficult situation. They were basically taken captive from their home in Jerusalem and brought back to Babylon. And there they were forced to learn the language and the literature of the Babylonians. They were immersed into the Babylonian culture. The Babylonians attempted to remove any vestige of their previous life and faith. They attempted to force Daniel and his friends to eat food that was forbidden by their religious beliefs and laws. Uh, they also tried to force their... Babylonian religion down their throats by renaming them with names that honored the Babylonian gods. But they were able to stand firm in their convictions and not compromise their faith. Uh, they, they were some of the few Jewish uh, captives who did so. The rest caved under the pressure. But those first few years of training would not be the last time that their faith would be challenged. And once again, they would prove that it is possible to stand firm in your faith and love well in a culture of compromise. And that's what we're talking about in this series. How do we stand strong in our faith without being hateful and mean and nasty to people. 
You see, they knew what they, uh, what we should know, and that is this, you are what you worship. In other words, what you worship develops you into the person you will become. Your words and your actions will determine, will, will determine who you worship. And that choice will either bring God's blessings or it will bring our own destruction. Now the goal of Satan is to get us to fall into the trap of worshiping created things rather than the creator. And this, in fact, was the trap set for Daniel's three friends. Now understand that God had blessed Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego by uh, giving them positions of influence and power in the Babylonian government. And he did that because of the first decisions they made, that they were not going to be defiled in this culture. Um, in the process, they would develop enemies, people who envied them. And that jealousy would be motivating factor for some to try to destroy these young Jewish men. So in our message today, we're going to see how their culture attempted to change them and force them to bow down to its idols. And as we study them, we can learn a little bit about ourselves. So let's go to Daniel chapter 3 today. And we'll discover what we need to do when the culture says, I must. The faith of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had become well known to the other Babylonian officials, those that were in power. And their faith would run counter to the culture in which they lived. And as we read in these verses about their situation, I want you to think about our situation. Because I think there are some similarities. Because I think we live in a culture where we have forces telling us as Christians what we must do or what we must think in order to get along. And if we bow down to their will, trouble will come. And if we don't bow down to their will, trouble will come. Here's the story of our friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So we're going to start in verse 1 of Daniel 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication for the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall and down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. 
Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and the peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And at this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Let's think about their story a little bit. We, we get the picture. King Nebuchadnezzar is a narcissist, right? M many people in power are narcissists. He wanted to be worshipped. He wanted the world to bow down to him. And in a sense, he considered himself a god. And those yes-men who surrounded him just fed into that false sense of entitlement. They made this huge golden image, 90 feet high, 9 feet wide, and I'd say it was about the size of King Nebuchadnezzar's ego, right? The command was that whenever the music played, and I'm not going to go through all the music again, okay? Uh, but everyone was to bow down to this image and worship it. And it was probably the largest idol ever created by man. A warning went out too. Hey, if you choose not to bow down, there's going to be some serious consequences. You're going to be thrown into this blazing furnace. Now, we know, and our friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew, that God's law demanded, have no other gods before you. And so when this command went out, they knew. We, we can't bow down and worship this idol. Worshiping anything other than God is idolatry. And again, our friends knew this. And so they decided, we're not going to bow down and worship. And it didn't take long for somebody to notice, right? When everybody else is bowing down and you're like the only three guys that are standing up, that's sort of obvious, right? Uh, and so these people that envied them anyway made their way to the king so that they could tattletale, right? You can almost sense that they were just itching for a chance to bring these guys down and to cause them trouble. And so they complained to the king. Wouldn't it be great if Somebody would say about us, they neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Wouldn't that be great? If that's, if that's the charge the world wants to bring against us, hey, they're not serving our gods. They're not bowing down to what we bow down to. That would be great if that was a charge against us. We refuse to worship the false idols of the world. It confounded those officials that these Jewish men would be so bold as to not bow down. I mean, everybody else is bowing down. Yet, did, did your mother or dad ever say to you, 
Well, if all your friends are running, jumping off into the lake, are you going to do that? Did they ever say that to you? This, this is sort of what God is saying. Hey, you do the right thing. It doesn't matter what everybody else is doing. And the officials wanted the full wrath of the king to fall upon them. You know, we live in a time, friends, that living as a Christian can create some difficulties for us. And I'm not just talking about a foreign culture like our friends in India have to deal with, you know, facing a physical attack because of their faith. I'm talking even here in America where once Christianity was a fairly prevalent religion, a faith. We can see how the culture is shifting. The Christian and biblical view of traditional marriage is just one example. And it provokes some to attack our faith verbally in the public arena. Uh, we, We have some in government who want to pass laws that directly contradict our system of belief. We have some in the government uh, who just totally disagree that, that we should have the freedom of religion. I, I do believe in my lifetime that we will see the government telling churches and preachers who we have to marry. If we're going to have weddings, we're going to have to bow down. And if we don't bow down to its will, there are going to be consequences. Churches have long had tax-exempt status because of the benevolent work that churches have done. But the government can come and snatch that away. And I think that may be one of the first steps to the government trying to control our churches. Now, now what would we do if that happened? I I think here at Christ Church, if, if I'm still around... We'll just stop doing government-recognized weddings. You know? Hey, go to, go to the judge, go to the magistrate, do what you, what you got to do to be recognized. <clears throat> we'll have a, a spiritual ceremony. But I have to do what God commands rather than what the government commands. And the church does too. We, we may just have to do a faith-based thing that isn't recognized by the government. Christian organizations will be expected to hire whoever the government tells us we have to hire. So if we have someone who is living a lifestyle that we believe runs contrary to Scripture, we would have to consider hiring them or else. For instance, Matthew is a Bible college many of you know about, Mid-Atlantic Christian University. You know, they may be put in a position where they have to interview and hire people in order to meet some kind of quota that the government has set up. And we're told that there must be diversity, and so a school may not consider whether the person is a Christian or not. and They'll have to meet some quota. And if they don't, the consequence will be the government will take away those grants and financial aid that that institution receives. Now, I'll tell you now that if the government made that decision... Matthew would fold the next day because it depends upon the government's influx of money to survive. We don't receive enough money from donors to keep that school afloat. 
In the name of diversity and inclusion, the culture wants us to go along to get along. And not long ago, our state even tried to institute some laws to make sure that schools were safe. And there was this big push to make our bathrooms gender neutral or something. So if a biological male felt like he wanted to be a woman and he declared this, the school would have to allow him to go into the girls' bathrooms and locker rooms. We've learned that in Virginia this happened and a young man raped a female student. Now, now, maybe some of you are buying into what the government's saying to you, but does this really make sense? I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me, but we see how the culture has shifted. We either bow down to the culture's philosophy or we will be threatened with heat. And maybe isn't the heat from a fiery furnace, but I tell you what, emotionally and spiritually and socially, it can certainly feel like a fiery furnace. Do we cave to the pressure to not make waves, just get along to, you know, go along to get along? Well, let's see how our friends deal with the heat. What do we do when the culture says, I can't? You see, the culture can't believe we wouldn't bow under the pressure. Everybody else is bowing. The culture doesn't get it. It will yell and it will scream at us. You can't do that. And that's what happened with our friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The king and those around him could not believe that they wouldn't bow. Even under the threat of the fiery furnace, they wouldn't bow. And so the king was furious. So we pick up again in verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. <coughs> and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, I believe, before we read the next part, I believe the king liked them. They had already been blessed. They had already been put in positions of authority. I think the king wanted everything to work out. And so in verse 15, he says, Now, when you, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if... Somebody want to pick that phone up? <laughs> I don't know where that's ringing. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. If we're, uh, but even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. 
and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army <coughs> to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing fire. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. Now you think about their story. No question, no one questioned the king in those days. And because of that, he arrogantly disregarded God. Talk about getting overheated. I mean, the king was way overheated. He wasn't used to people saying no to him. In fact, he probably had never had that happen. I think he thought he could intimidate them. He gave them one last chance. But don't you love the response of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They didn't argue. In fact, they were very respectful to him. You know, your majesty. <laughs> they didn't strike back. They didn't make a fuss. They simply, in essence, said, Hey, king, we don't have to defend ourselves to you. We aren't worried about the fiery furnace. God can save us from it, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down to these idols. Basically, the king was saying, You can't make that choice. I will force you to do what I tell you to do. By burning them to a crisp, <laughs> he would set an example for anyone else in the kingdom who thought that they could say no to the king. And what the king didn't understand was that he too needed to bow before God Almighty. Just no one had ever told him this and no one had the courage to stand up to him to tell him this. Now, now I imagine it took a lot of courage for those three men to stand there with these threats and everybody else pushing. And I pray we respond in the same way. We don't have to argue. We don't have to fight. We, we just simply state the fact. We, we trust in God, not man. We, we will worship and obey Him no matter what the consequences may be. So as we think about our story, we live in a world where we're told we must be <coughs> this or we can't say that. We can't speak about biblical principles and values. We can't say something is a sin. We're told that when we disagree with the culture's propaganda, that we are dangerous, that we are threatening people's lives. So our speech can be considered hate speech and we can be canceled our social media accounts can be locked down. Some of y'all have had that happen, I think, right? For a Christian to quote scripture and call sin a sin is considered a sin in our culture. The question is, how do we do this? This is a big question. But still act lovingly. How do we speak the painful truth without coming across as mean and judgmental. And I think there are several things we need to consider. We must speak the truth in love. Amen to that? Would we all agree with that? That, that means the whole truth. People who don't understand sin and its consequences have no understanding of their need for God's grace. Why would somebody think that they need Jesus and the sacrifice that He made if they don't even understand their sin. 
How can they understand if they're not told? There's no way. Now, in a strange way, we have to stand up to the world in order for the world to understand how far away it is from God. We have to be a light back to God. But I don't think we get there by yelling and screaming at people. I don't think we get there by trying to get in fights with people. Our motivation is love and not hate. It is compassion and not anger. It is concern for the eternal soul and not disgust at their earthly choices. As Christians, we have these two things to balance. Our obedience and honor to a holy God and our love and concern for lost souls. When challenged by the culture, can we respond as our three courageous heroes responded? The simple truth, not spoken out of anger or hate and spoken respectfully and kindly and out of love. We don't have to defend ourselves before the world. We don't have to defend God. We don't have to come up with excuses for God. We just have to be faithful to God. What if people don't accept us? What if people will reject us? What if the government brings charges against us? What if people picket us and cancel us and attack us verbally or through social media or even worse? Would we say, hey, culture, I don't have to defend you or defend myself before you. I'm not worried about your fiery furnace. You can cancel me. You can try to shut me down. Do whatever you want to do. God can save me from that. But even if he doesn't, I just want you to know, I'm not going to bow down to your idols. That needs to be our heart. And the real problem is the world doesn't know God. Therefore, they don't believe God has a say in the culture. You know, the Bible says that Satan is actually the prince of this world. So you're going you're gonna to find Satan being sympathetic to Christians? No. So how do we act when the culture questions God's right to be God? And this again was the real battle going on for our friends in Babylon. It wasn't so much about them as it was about who God is. If God was like the rest of the gods the Babylonians followed then I would say to you that God had no standing at all. They did not need to obey him if he was just one of the other gods. (coughs) Because you remember what the king said to them when he threatened them with the fiery furnace in verse 15. He said, Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? In other words, King Nebuchadnezzar believed he was more powerful and stronger than any other God. Do you get that? Do you hear what he's saying? No God you want to bow down and worship can save you from me because I will crush you 
But their God was not like all the other Babylonian gods. So let's read in verse 22 and following. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, certainly, your majesty. And he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then King Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces <coughs> and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Now, again, just getting their story together, the wrath of the king, I mean, it was, he was pouring it on because they dared to say no, but in the midst of pouring out his wrath, he saw something. What was it he saw? Weren't, weren't there three men we threw in there? <laughs> why, why is he seeing four men? And he's stunned. They're walking around. They're not burning up to a crisp. And that's when it hit him. The God they served was the one true God. No other God. He had ever known could have saved them. But their God was the most high God. And in that moment, a narcissistic and arrogant king was brought to his knees. When he saw that the three men were unharmed, even their clothes weren't damaged, he actually praised God. Now think about this turnaround here, friends. Instead of hating them, for their insubordination, he praised them for staying true to their values and their God. And he did more. He legitimized their faith. Now, maybe he didn't do it in a way that we would think that that's, that's the best way to do it. Uh, he was still working sort of on the premise that you force people into submission uh, and obedience. So he threatened anyone that ever spoke against the Jewish God, again, would be cut into pieces. <laughs> Again, not the way we want to do things. But he did get this right when he said no other God can save in this way. And friends, just think about it. If, if they had caved to the pressure, 
the king would never have known the truth. He would have never recognized God's right to be God. And sometimes we go through these fiery furnace moments to prove our faith so that those around us can see that God has a right to be God. And these men remained faithful even with the threats and even when those threats were carried out. And we can have that influence on our culture in a positive way if we will simply be faithful. We don't have to throw bombs. We don't have to twist arms. We don't have to get in arguments. In fact, we don't want to force anybody to believe anything. That doesn't change hearts, does it? You can't force people to have a real and genuine relationship with God. They have to come to a personal conclusion that God is real and there's no other God like Him, that He has a right to be God. And that doesn't happen by debating people. I don't think I've ever seen anyone convinced in a debate. In debate, we tend to dig our heels in because it's all about winning the argument. It's not about saving the soul. Rarely does it change hearts. And we can pass laws to stop discrimination, but that doesn't change the prejudice in a person's heart. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have the law, but I'm, all I'm saying is that it doesn't change who the person is. What changes a person is when they come face to face with the Most High God. And when they realize they can't save themselves and only He can. And when they recognize their sin and that He is willingly offering forgiveness to everyone, no matter where we come from, from every nation, from every language, from every ethnic group, God's love is poured out and He offers to save us like no other God can save us. And whether people acknowledge God or not doesn't really matter. He is who He is, and their lack of faith doesn't change that reality. But He wants to break through to their hearts. And He uses our faithful and loving obedience to do that. And sometimes He will use even our own suffering to reveal Himself to people. I'm reminded of Gladys Staines. I've shared this a couple of times in the 23 years we've been around. But she was an Australian missionary in India. She and her husband, Graham, had been serving the lepers in that country for 15 years. Some Hindu extremists caught Graham and his two sons uh, parked in a vehicle. And they doused that vehicle with gasoline. And his two sons, Philip, who was 10, and Timothy, 7, and he were burned alive in that vehicle. You know, they're doing good things, and they love Jesus, and they're hated because they love Jesus. It doesn't make any sense, but that's the culture, right? That's the world. 
So after the mob uh, was found out and the government did arrest them and, and they were actually convicted of the murder, the media asked Gladys how she felt about these evil men. Did she want to see them die? And her comments stunned the Indian people because she said, I have forgiven them because they didn't know what they were doing. Now, isn't that an amazing thing for a mother and a wife knowing that these men burned her children and her husband alive? But see, she saw the bigger picture. She saw beyond just what happened physically. She knew that these men... They had no concept of God. They didn't recognize God's right to be God. And so she quoted the Lord on the cross. Rather than responding to hate with hate, she responded with love and forgiveness. And thus she opened the door for many people to see the God whom she served. And friends, unless people see God for who He is, They're not going to recognize he has the right to be God. And in many ways, it is up to us to show them who God is by being more and more like Jesus. And when we worship him, not just in a building on a Sunday morning, but every day of our lives, we offer them the best hope of seeing him. Wherever you may be, when you're at work, when you're at school, when you're, you know, playing ball or doing whatever it is you're doing, if if by your words, if by your actions, if by the way you treat other people, you are showing Jesus to them, this is a form of our worship. You are what you worship. And if you love this world more than you love Jesus, well, you will bow down to the pressure and you will accept everything the world tells you and you will do whatever you need to do to get along. You will not be willing to suffer sacrifice and you will cave in every time. But friends, if you worship Jesus, it won't matter what the culture threatens you with because you will stand firm Because you will be like him. And that's the way we change the world or the people who are in our area of influence. Father, we thank you for the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Thank you for other people like them who have refused to compromise with the world. But not only that, they have also refused to be angry or hateful in taking their stand. They simply held on to faith and trusted you. And I pray, Father, that we too will have that same determination so that we will honor and glorify your name and also so that possibly someone can come to faith in the Most High God. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.